0: When I lived in Washington, D.C., one of my favorite places to go or things to do was to go to the National Mall, and this was a long strip in front of the U.S. Capitol Building that was lined with museums and monuments, and my favorite museum to go to was the National Gallery of Art. Uh, I am not an art expert or historian, just uh, an admirer, and uh, I'm also a sucker for good gift shops. And one of the best ones in D.C. is in the basement of the National Gallery of Art. Uh, Well, one of the things that I like to do, in addition to just appreciating the artwork uh, in and of itself, uh, was admire the way that the artwork was presented. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the detail of the kind of frame that surrounds a painting is actually really important and communicates a lot about the work. So if you see a very thin, silver-looking frame... Around a picture, it's likely a pretty new piece of art. It's likely more modern and maybe not so valuable. But if you see a large canvas that has an ornate frame around it, uh, that's detailed and meticulous, then the chances are this painting's going to be more valuable. And of course, if you've ever seen a, a picture with a really thick frame around it, uh, that, that's far too small of a picture. And uh, it just looks awkward. The purpose of a frame is not to draw attention away from the painting, but to draw your eyes closer into the painting so you can appreciate the beauty that's there. Well, so far in Mark's gospel, what Mark has been doing has been describing to us the frame around the person of Jesus. So in verse 1 of Mark chapter 1, he opens by explaining what he's going to do with the entire book, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the good news that the Messiah, the very person, has finally come. Uh, By the way, Messiah just means anointed one. So Christ is another word for Messiah. Uh, It's not his last name, it's just a title. And specifically, he was the one that God promised would bring an everlasting covenant. This was promised to God's people over 400 years ago. So they would have been expecting someone to come and especially... In a military fashion, take over the region, restore the Davidic kingship over Israel. That's what the Jews would have expected. They would have had heard stories uh, from their parents about slavery in Egypt and how God released them, made them His people. About how He promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they would also. They would have also known about the time that Solomon's greed outgrew his wisdom and the way Israel was judged for their idolatry. All of this would have made the Jews long for restoration and to return to former glory. This also means that there would have been a lot of would-be messiahs. Uh, People may be claiming to be the the messiahs, and Jews would have to figure out whether or not their claim was true or not. So when Mark is introducing Jesus in these first 20 verses, chapter 1, he's doing so in a way that's going to communicate the authenticity of Christ. Like a large frame around a portrait. So he first quotes from the prophet Isaiah and shows the way that Jesus fits this description through his forerunner John. And then it's like another layer of the frame as Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit comes down upon him and God the Father says, This is my, whole, my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days replicating Israel's history of temptation of meeting God in desolate places and that frame just keeps getting thicker and thicker it seems to show that Jesus really is the Messiah Jesus preaches his first sermon and says repent and believe for the gospel of the kingdom is at hand and then he calls men to himself well what after he calls disciples to follow him Today we continue to follow Jesus as he begins a more public ministry of teaching and healing. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 45. It's Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 45. And you can find that on page 836 of the Bibles provided. Initially, I had only plans to cover through verse 34 and uh, after studying just found that I think it's best for us to consider the rest of the whole chapter all at once uh, as some of the similar themes draw through these events. But let's read our passage together now. It says this, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. speak because they knew him and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed and Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him everyone is looking for you and he said to them let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him. And kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. And said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. At this point in Mark's Gospel... There are three aspects of Jesus' ministry that I want to draw your attention to this morning. Uh, Those three aspects are going to be the three points of the sermon His reputation, His authority, and His mission. His reputation, His authority, and His mission. The main idea of this passage, uh, like it is for much of the whole gospel, is that Jesus is the true Messiah but not the one that Israel expected. And as we continue through the book of Mark, I think you'll see why that's the case. But I pray that through Mark's teaching of Jesus, your love and commitment to Christ as King goes deeper than ever before. So first aspect about Jesus' ministry, his reputation. What did people in that time actually think about Jesus during his ministry? That's a very different question than asking what Jesus' reputation is today. Uh, You'd get a lot of mixed answers. Uh, There's uh, many common ideas out there today that uh, maybe Jesus' disciples made up a lot of the stories about Jesus as kind of a ruse to uh, chase down relics or as a power grab. Uh, Those are some of the ideas in a fiction novel called The Da Vinci Code from 2003. But... The culture during Jesus' time would have had its own misconceptions about Jesus as well. We know that Israel wanted a Messiah to lead a military revolt against the Romans. But based on Mark's description alone, he seems like he could be that person. He seems exactly to fit the mold. He was clearly prophesied about, baptized, uh, stayed true against the forces of darkness in the wilderness, So perhaps maybe he would come and conquer the forces of land as well. Jesus didn't go unnoticed after calling his first disciples. uh, He goes to their home city where their house is, and then he makes a beeline straight to the synagogue. Well, why did he do that? Well, synagogues basically were gathering halls for the Jews. They likely were constructed after Solomon's temple was destroyed. Uh, They were designated as a religious house for people to come and Worship and receive instruction to hear scripture read out loud and taught. And occasionally, occasionally on Sabbath days, that's Saturdays, they would have a guest rabbi come and teach. And that's what Jesus was doing in our text today. Jesus goes on the Sabbath, which is a day set apart for worship and rest from work. Uh, it's actually a commandment given to the old uh, covenant people that they were to observe. So most likely the people that were in the synagogue on the Sabbath were people that were religious observers. They were people who were open to teaching from the Old Testament. It's an ideal place for Jesus to go and teach about himself if he believed himself to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But what's the effect that his teaching has on the people in the synagogue? It says that they were astonished. Whatever he was teaching, this is like one of those times in the Bible where you, you really wish you could have been there. I wonder what Jesus said. What did, he, what did he say to Jews who were worshiping on the Sabbath in the synagogue? But whatever he said, Mark seems to think that what's more important for us to know is not so much what he taught about, but the way he taught. So Mark explains to us that people were astonished. The effect that Jesus had as the teacher is what he wants to draw our attention to. The people among them talk among themselves and they're amazed because they say Jesus taught with authority, specifically not like the scribes they were used to. Uh, I, don't, I don't think this is actually a knock against the scribes, uh, saying that they weren't authoritative teachers. I don't think he's describing the scribes negatively, but rather Jesus positively. Now, it could be that the scribes... When they taught, simply just referred to other rabbis' teachings and uh, just quoted other famous works. But the scribes were the PhDs of the day. They were the educated elites, experts in the law. Their occupation was reading and writing scripture. So it's pretty significant that Jesus teaches, Jesus the carpenter, teaches and amazes them. I think what most likely... Mark means when he describes that Jesus taught not like the scribes was that Jesus was just uh, a significantly better teacher. That his teaching was uh, distinguished, that it was captivating and his very voice just commanded authority, commanded attention. We, we hear the Old Testament and then he says, but I say to you, based on his own authority, he's interpreting the Old Testament law He's teaching in a way that, uh, him, he, that, that shows himself to be an authority. It's because it's the authority of God himself. Now, notice Jesus' reputation not only among the religious people, but other voices show up as well. Uh, a demon outs himself in the middle of the gathering and shouts at Jesus. Uh, and this is just a crazy event. We, we shouldn't skip over this without recognizing how, how, in, how intense this would have been. I think we get used to reading the Bible and we're either familiar with these stories or there's just so many spectacular things that we skip over it and it's like no big deal. A demon shouted at Jesus and he cast him out in the middle of this gathering. But that wasn't very common in those days either. If it was, it wouldn't have drawn as much attention as it did. But, but the demon yells out at Jesus in the middle of the gathering, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus was just teaching. <laughs> it doesn't even say that Jesus recognized the demon and called him out. Jesus is just doing what he's doing. And the demon even asks, Have you come to destroy us? I wonder where he got that idea. How is it that the demon recognized Jesus? Jesus. Well, it's because Jesus doesn't just have an earthly reputation. He has a cosmic one as well. And he's known among those in the kingdom of darkness as the destroyer. And I've got to say, I, I love that that's his reputation among the demons. Uh, we hear from descriptions in Revelation and Daniel. He comes with a, a sword out of his mouth and eyes like fire. Jesus is known as the one who had the ability and probably the intention of destroying them. And they also give them a title. They say, The Holy One of God, which is an interesting title because it's not uh, a common one. The only other time in the New Testament it's used is in John 6, verse 69, when Peter states, Lord, whom should, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So it's clear what's being said about Jesus, that Jesus himself is God. In Isaiah, the prophet refers to God as the Holy One of Israel at least 27 times. So these demons are not just recognizing Jesus as, as a, a heavenly celebrity in front of them. No, they, they are terrified because God himself is right in front of them. It's no wonder they were afraid. The demons provide a perfect example for us. To see that knowledge by itself does not give us any credit before God. True theology doesn't save us. James 2.19 says that even the demons believe and shudder. That's exactly what's happening here. And so we don't want to be like the demons or like nominal Christians that James speaks of who believe in Jesus but don't have the works to back up their faith. Pray that we don't be a church that becomes arrogant because of our theological knowledge but neglects matters of the heart. Our knowledge of doctrine is useless if we don't put it into practice. If our theology doesn't lead to doxology, to the praise and the glory of God, then we miss the whole point of theology, the study of the things of God. Now notice that Jesus He doesn't address what the demons say. He doesn't even answer them. He just rebukes them. Jesus doesn't have to explain to them what he's doing. He doesn't defend himself. I think from that we can learn that there are times to speak and there are some times to be silent. We pray that the Lord would give you wisdom in knowing when to do which. But much wisdom is... Needed, I think, in knowing when is a good time to defend yourself and when is a time to simply be silent. I think it's just a good thing to say in today's culture where written communication is so prevalent, whether it's by private text or on a public social media platform, communication can happen so fast without even opening one's mouth. We as Christians need to be careful. To exercise a special kind of shrewdness in communicating to others, especially in public. Think about all the things that Jesus could have done in that moment, but he didn't. Why was the demon so afraid in the first place? Well, it's because he knows that there will be a day that Jesus will come with the sword as the destroyer of all evil. The demon's anticipating that day is likely to happen, and he probably thought that's what was happening in that day, But that's not why Jesus came in his first appearance. So, brothers and sisters, if you have ever been a victim of some kind of terrible evil or been abused or abandoned, take comfort in knowing that Jesus will come to bring perfect justice on that day. No wrongdoer will get away with it, even if it feels like they do now. On that day, the Lord Jesus will remove any pain left inside of you, any wrong that you were subjected to. There will be no scars or trauma or strife. Instead, there will be peace and resolution. All will be well. And we also need to note that Jesus is the destroyer, not us. It's good to fight for justice, but we should leave the vengeance to God. It's interesting that Jesus commands the demon and the demon obeys. He convulses the man as if being pulled out kicking and screaming and he shouts, but he doesn't have a choice. Jesus commands with a few words and they obey him. That whole scene is just a spectacle. But this act of the exorcism wasn't actually the takeaway for the people. For the people who were there, what do they say in verse 27? They were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So Jesus' confrontation with the demon only supports his teaching. You'll find again and again that as Jesus goes about performing miracles, he draws a lot of attention, but most of those miracles are done to to reinforce his teaching. Uh, Next week, we'll study... The first 12 verses where Jesus heals the paralytic. And in verse 10 of chapter 2, Jesus says, That you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he heals him. Jesus astonishes the crowd with his teaching and then performs a miracle to support it. So Jesus' reputation goes far beyond the religious of the day, it goes beyond the demons. Look at verse 28. He says that once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And then later in verse 33, the whole city comes to Peter's house, bringing their sick and demon-possessed for healing. And when Jesus goes to pray, Peter says, everyone is looking for you. And then down in verse 45, Mark tells us Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in the desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. So what was his reputation among the region? It was likely as healer and certainly as a captivating teacher. Not only did he cast out the demon in the synagogue, but he also heals the fever of Simon Peter, uh, Peter's mother-in-law. And then he continues to heal various diseases and cast out demons for the rest of the evening. Now it's hyperbole that the entire city of Capernaum was at their house. I'm not sure Peter's house was large enough for that, but the point is, is definitely that Jesus was up late into the night, healing all kinds of people. Word was spreading of Jesus, a man who would heal like wildfire, so that even a man of leprosy on the outskirts of society heard word of Jesus and came to him for healing. It's almost as if Jesus couldn't contain his reputation, that it just spread so much that he was running away from it. Jesus' reputation spread all over the area. Well, that's his reputation among the religious, among the demons, among the region as a whole. Let's move on to the second aspect of Jesus' ministry, Jesus' authority. We've already talked about the way Jesus taught with authority as witnessed by the religious of the day. But there's more to examine in regards to his position of power over creation throughout the text. He's certainly an authority over the Old Testament Scriptures. He's not only authoritative as a teacher, but as a ruler. Exercises authority over the demons who do not submit to him willingly, but have to obey. The Son of God has authority over all things, not just his followers. Not just in the new heavens and new earth, but over this earth today i think i don't know about you but uh, i tend to look forward to the time when jesus is really in charge like as if he's not in charge today after all wickedness is rampant in the world and if jesus is in control then why would he allow it all to happen well let me remind you what peter says in his second letter chapter 3 verse 9 peter says the lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So Jesus' delay in coming is actually an act of mercy so that people would repent of their sin and be saved before he returns. That's what gives us hope as a church, as we go out and share the gospel, that there are people that before the foundation of the earth, Jesus decided to save. And we know that when the gospel is preached, it will, it will be effective in their hearts. Still the day will come when none will escape a hearing before the righteous judge. So do you live in a way that recognizes Jesus' authority over your life? Parents, do you teach your children uh, that you yourselves are not just their authority, but you are under authority as well? The people of the synagogue were amazed when they heard the teachings of Jesus because it was the very Word of God made flesh. It was God incarnate speaking. And we should approach our time in God's Word in a similar way, expecting to be amazed, expecting to be astonished by the wisdom of God and its power in our lives. Each week we have a reading in the service from a chosen portion of Scripture. Because God's Word being read out loud to God's people changes hearts. And it was always seen as a time in which God spoke to His people. So we can listen to Scripture in awe as it's being read and know that God speaks to us this very day. Now Jesus doesn't just have authority over people and demons, but even authority over sickness. That fever that Peter's mother-in-law had, It was common, but it wasn't as mild as fevers are for us today. Today, when you get a fever, you drink a lot of fluids, you maybe take some medicine, you get lots of rest, and that usually takes care of it. But they didn't have access to controlled environments, to AC, to thermometers, to an abundance of fluids. So for someone to have a fever, there was a significant chance that that fever might have taken their life. That would have weighed heavy on Peter's heart. And so he tells Jesus immediately. Healings, even when Jesus walked the earth, were not common, like, just like they're not common today. But Jesus can heal. It's not out of step for us to ask God for miraculous healings, but we should do them knowing that the decision is His, not ours. Are you as quick to go to Jesus with your concerns and your sorrows, as Peter is here. I don't know about you, but I tend to think in my life that God knows my thoughts. He knows my feelings. He knows exactly what's going on in my life, which is all true. But, but then I talk myself out of praying. And I think, well, therefore, I don't need to talk to God. He already knows everything that's going on in my life. In what ways do you talk yourself out of talking to God. Is it because fear that God's will is different from your own? Is it because you just don't have the time? Look with me at verses 35 and following. Jesus had just performed a long day of teaching and healing late into the night and it says, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, He departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said, everyone is looking for you. Uh, This isn't meant to guilt trip anyone who feels they are busy and have a hard time finding time to pray. But brothers and sisters, if Jesus was able to find time to pray, then certainly we can too. It's amazing, isn't it, that the Son of God Himself needs, uh, or at least makes time to pray. I would think if there's anyone who doesn't need to, it would be Jesus. If there's anyone in the Bible we would expect not to see praying, it might be Jesus. But even the Lord of all the heavenly hosts takes time to pray and refresh His soul. Simon, Simon Peter comes searching for Him and Uh, And then he says, everyone's looking for you. And um, one commentator says that that's a thinly veiled rebuke. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been rebuked in this way. It usually happens when someone's expectations of you haven't been met. Uh, Maybe some kind of fake question. I thought you were going to be doing this. I thought you were going to be back at this time. What are you doing? Well, the reason Peter talks that way is because Peter's assumption is that Jesus shouldn't be out praying. His assumption is that Jesus is needed where the crowds are. There's more healing to be done. There's more miracles to work. This kind of uh, rebuke also happened in Luke's gospel when Jesus was 12 years old. He stayed behind at the temple and his parents left and went home and they searched for him for three days. And when they showed up, his mom asks him, why have you treated us this way? She also assumed there were better places for Jesus to be. Now, granted, uh, that's a natural concern for a mother who's missed a child for three days. But the point is this. There's always going to be things that pop up in our lives that will demand our attention, that will try to convince us are more important than times in God's Word and time in prayer. But we must not neglect this important discipline. Prayer brings life. It brings comfort. And it brings rest. Not only that, but our Heavenly Father wants to hear our prayers. The relationship between a parent and a child, I think, makes this the most clear. A parent is usually uh, in tune with what the child is going through. They usually know what's going on with the child, having experienced more life. But, But the parent still wants to talk to their child about what's going on, to hear from their mouths, to hear them express themselves, and to be able to provide some kind of comfort. So it is, too, with our Heavenly Father. He likes to hear our prayers, to comfort us when we're afflicted. So what are the things that stop you from praying? What things can you do in your life to avoid disruptions in your prayer? Brothers and sisters, nothing is more important than your relationship with God. In all your other roles in life, uh, we can use Husbands and fathers, as an example, they're called to lead their families. Well, the best way that you're going to lead is if you have a right relationship with God. If you are being nourished by God's Word and spending time in prayer, it will give you wisdom to carry out your duties at your job as an employee or as an employer. It's like the, uh, the instructions when you go on a plane and they talk about what to do if the plane goes in a nosedive and those oxygen masks come down and they always tell you to make sure yours is fitted first before you help someone else's or before you put, put one on your child and that may sound selfish at first but really the reason behind that instruction is because you're best fit to help someone else uh, if your oxygen supply is continuous uh, if, if you're in a safe position to help others otherwise you're not dependable so too we should refresh ourselves spiritually with time in God's word and time in prayer well, Jesus has authority over teaching, over demons, over internal bodily illnesses like fever. Uh, in, in Luke's gospel, there's even a point where he rebukes the fever and casts it out like a demon, which is interesting. Well, Jesus is also authoritative over exterior, exterior external disease like leprosy. After only a, a single day, Jesus' news spreads all over the region, and it must have been uh, all the way to the outside of towns, because that's where lepers had to dwell. They were the outcasts of society. And it brought one leper seeking out physical healing from Jesus. And this man had nothing to lose, certainly, but he broke every rule in the book about what lepers are supposed to do. Notice the prayer, though, that moves Jesus to heal him. He says, If you will, You can make me clean. It's not even a question, is it? It's a statement. Jesus, you have the power to make me clean. I also know you don't have to. But if you will, I know it will happen. Please let it be so. It's a desperate prayer. But it acknowledges Jesus' power and authority and submits to Jesus' will. I try to make my pastoral prayers like this, but when I'm writing them, and sometimes in private prayer, I, I just notice in my own heart, sometimes my prayers, in my prayers, I, will, I want to correct God, like as if I know what God should do, like as if I know what He should be doing and I'm telling him what to do. Do you really ask God for things? Or do you instruct him in your prayers? Well, Jesus is moved with pity and says, I will be clean. But he doesn't just speak to heal him. That's what's really interesting. We know he could have done that. He has, in other instances, simply said a word. And then people who weren't even in the area are healed instantly. But Jesus reaches out and does something that no other man would have ever done. He touches him. Leprosy was a skin disease that was extremely contagious at that time. It caused rashes and sores and dead skin. Uh, People who got leprosy had to leave their families and live in caves with other lepers because it was contagious. And if they were within 50 feet of someone, they had to announce themselves by by yelling, unclean, so that people would know to stay away. Well, it's highly contagious, so there's all kinds of rules about what to do if you come close or in contact with a leper. You can read about those in excruciating detail in Leviticus 13 and 14. But the point is this, Jesus touching the man should have made Jesus unclean, but it didn't. Instead, the opposite happens. Jesus touches the man, and the man is healed, and he's cleansed. It was common knowledge of the day that being healed from leprosy was something that only God could do. And yet again, we find Jesus saying things and doing things that only God does. So he tells the man to go to the priests. He instructs them to do this for a few reasons. First, uh, Jesus was obedient to the law. So he's just simply instructing the man how to be a good observer of the law himself, to do what Moses commanded, to go to the rabbi. Secondly, The priest was the only one who could declare someone clean in society. So he would need that declaration in order to be restored to go back to his family and in his town. And third, if the priest confirmed that this man had in fact been cleansed, then it would point to the power of Jesus. It would be a witness, whether they recognized it or not, it would be a witness to Jesus' authority to his messiahship and to his holiness. The Holy One of God demonstrates his holiness by cleansing a leper of his spots, and in doing so, he trades places with him. The cleansing of the leper, uh, which was a real event, uh, also is a really good analogy for what conversion looks like. After all, this leper was cut off from others alone. With a disease that would only spread and lead to death. It was basically a death sentence in those days. The corruption on the outside of their bodies would spread over time. They were basically walking corpses. Well, that's exactly how the Bible describes us in our spiritual state before Christ. But instead of on our bodies, sin is a disease that corrupts us from within. It corrupts us wholly and completely. The Bible describes us as dead in our sins, like dry bones without any breath in them. But God brings us to life by canceling our record of debt before the Father. Jesus takes our place on the cross as the punishment for our sins, the punishment that we deserve so that we would experience not the second death, which is hell for eternity, but instead adopts us as sons and daughters of the kingdom of God. In this story, Jesus restores an outcast. He gives him his life again. And Jesus, in turn, becomes an, out, an outcast. As his, his fame grows, he can't go anywhere except for desolate places. By the way, when it says desolate places, that's the same word used for wilderness. So Jesus is out in this Desolate places, spending time with God, but also away from people. It's also ironic that when Jesus tells people not to talk about him, they go and they talk about him. And after Jesus rose from the grave, he commands his disciples to tell people about him, and we sometimes shy away from it. Anyway. Why does Jesus tell others not to tell uh, people about him. That seems contrary to uh, what his goal was, doesn't it? If he was the Messiah, if he was to be the king of his people, you would think he would want that knowledge to spread to people. But the reason lies in his mission. That's the third aspect, his mission. What was it? Wasn't it to heal as many people and perform as many miracles as possible so that all people would know who he was? Not exactly. Uh, Performing miracles was supplemental to his primary mission. And his primary mission was to preach the good news about himself. We know that not only because Jesus' first words in the book, but we also know that because of the first verse of our text today. What is the first thing Jesus does when he enters into Capernaum? He goes straight to the synagogue to teach. After escaping people, leaving to pray, they go looking for him. And when he hears everyone's been looking, he says in verse 38, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And then he went through out all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. I'm sure there were more people to be healed in Capernaum. But that wasn't Jesus' primary ministry or his primary mission. Instead, it was to preach to the people in the area. And he inevitably attracted a lot of attention along the way. You know, I wonder if as he went from synagogue to synagogue, uh, demons kept (laughs) outing themselves and shouting, identifying him, suddenly making him so popular and out of compassion. He's healing people and exercising demons along the way. So his reputation is just growing and growing. But Jesus is... Mission is to reach people and to convey a message. That message was the good news that the Christ had brought the kingdom of God and that any and everyone who wanted to be saved only needed to believe in him and turn from their sins. Now, something still seems to not add up. If Jesus' mission was to preach about himself, why did he silence demons? They, after all, did identify him correctly. Why did he instruct the man cleansed from leprosy not to tell anyone of his healing power? This is what scholars refer to as the messianic secret, uh, the secret that he's the Messiah. Many times in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus tells people not to tell others, which seems counterintuitive. He speaks to them in parables and only reveals what the teaching means privately to his disciples. And one of the reasons... Jesus does that, I think, is because people get the wrong idea. What I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, that Jesus came to overthrow the Romans in a military fashion was one of the things that they expected. So word spreading that a figure who would do just that has finally arrived might draw unwanted attention from the rulers in the area. Jesus had a number of places to visit and sermons to give before he would be turned over to the Roman cross, And I think that's part of it. But you want to know the other reason for the messianic secret? I think people were drawn to him for the wrong reasons. What do you think would happen when a known man with leprosy would go back to all his uh, leprosy community and friends? It would have attracted probably a horde of lepers, which would have been a problem for a number of reasons. Or maybe that leper would have gone home to his family and his family confirming that this had happened. Word would spread to the town and maybe other families who also had to send away lepers would follow and go after Jesus looking for physical healing. The whole city is searching for Jesus, bringing to him all their sick and demon-possessed. But they came to him for healing, not for teaching. For physical matters, not for spiritual matters. But Jesus' priority was to teach before anything else. And that's what he did once his fame spread through the area. That's why I came out, he says in verse 38. So we miss the point if we only look to Jesus' miracles as a spectacle while ignoring the teaching behind them. The miracles are done to support and confirm his teaching as it does in the synagogue in Capernaum. These miracles provide tangible evidence that his teaching is true. So what are we to do with this knowledge 2,000 years after Christ walked the earth? Well, Jesus' primary ministry then continues to be the church's primary ministry today. We're to continue to proclaim the message that the kingdom of God has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. That the message of salvation for all those who repent of their sin and believe in Jesus, or to remember the authority by which this message is proclaimed. Jesus said, All authority on earth and in heaven has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I've commanded you. So, brothers and sisters, when you talk about Jesus and when you share your faith, Are you only talking about the miracles or amazing things that he did? To do that would be like describing the scaffolding around an amazing building. Tell them about Jesus' teaching. Tell them that he came as the suffering servant, as the ransom for our sins. Jesus came to save many. Make sure that the reputation of Jesus in your own life isn't a superficial one, but one that has real authority over the things that you do and the decisions that you make. Those decisions and actions will be evident to the world. Continue preaching the gospel to all people, for that's the only message that saves. So we remember Jesus' reputation among religious, among the demons, among the regions. We remember the authority by which Jesus came and the message that he proclaimed. That the Son of God brings salvation to all who will turn and trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning as captives who are set free. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he came with the authority to command demons, and they obeyed and shuddered in fear. We thank you for the hope that we have in heaven, that one day Jesus will come to judge all evil and wickedness, to restore all things, and to bring us to new life in him. Father, we thank you that Jesus' mission wasn't just to perform miracles for a time. But instead of just healing physically, He brings life to us spiritually for all eternity. Father, I pray that we would set our sights on Jesus as we continue to study the Gospel of Mark. Our love for Jesus and our astonishment of His power would ever increase. Father, we pray these things in His holy name. Amen.